Now, in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, the Word of God says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, last week, as we studied through uh, the end of chapter number 3, the focus of our attention last week was on the place that the Old Testament law occupied in the dispensational plan of God. Let me say a word about the dispensational plan of God, because that word dispensation and dispensational is very important if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth. To be a dispensationalist, and uh, how many of you have heard that term before, dispensational? Not asking if you know what it means, some do, some don't, I'm sure, but uh, you've heard that word dispensational. That is, if I could boil it down to a very quick explanation or definition, it's the belief that God has always been the same God, that man, ever since he fell into depravity, he's always been in a lost condition from his birth, uh, that God's plan has always been for salvation through his Son, but that God has dealt with men in different ways, in different ages, and given to them different amounts of light and revelation concerning himself and the things of God. Now, you say, preacher, why is that so important? Because as you study through the Word of God, if you wipe away the dispensational framework, then we should expect God to deal with us today in the very same way that He dealt with the Old Testament Jews. The sheer reality of it, friend, is that God doesn't deal with you and I as Gentiles in this age of grace in the way that He dealt with His elect earthly people, the children of Israel, in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll find uh, through the Word of God, well, I'm not going to teach on dispensationalism not, but I encourage you sometime to study it because it will help you as you build a framework of understanding in Scripture. So what Paul has done has presented to us the purpose of the Old Testament law in that dispensation of law, that Old Covenant, as the Word of God calls it, what the purpose of it was. Now, you, we must remind ourselves as we study the book of Galatians that the whole purpose of the book of Galatians is to show to us that salvation is by grace, wholly apart from the Old Testament law, that you and I, as believers, that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and been justified, been placed within Him, uh, that the Old Testament law cannot serve us in any way in this day that we live in. Now, we talked a little bit uh, about last week about the the practical importance of the law. I'm not saying we cut everything before uh, Matthew out of the Bible. There's a lot we can gain, even in the sense of practical spirituality or morality. Uh, but we are not bound to the works of the law in any way, shape, fashion, or form. We have liberty in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things I love about the Word of God is this. The Word of God is a logical book. It's not a humanly logical book. 
but is a spiritually logical book. And what I mean by that is this. Atheists consistently accuse believers of hiding behind the God hypothesis. If we ever come to a difficulty, we say, well, just God did that, you know. And, and they say, well, you're just hiding behind that. They never take the time to openly and honestly, with an open mind, read the Word of God. They'd find that God doesn't even necessarily expect us to operate in that way. Uh, Paul is very aware that as each of these points are presented, that questions are going to arise. There's times that Paul, when uh, he was writing the New Testament, there were times he even presumed what these questions were and answered them before the questions were ever even asked. Of course, he's writing these by way of letter. There couldn't be a literal, immediate, uh, you know, real-time interaction, but he knew that these questions would arise. And so as Paul begins to show us that salvation has always been by grace, that the promise that God gave to himself and included Abraham in, that the law cannot disannul that promise. And uh, he understands that the next logical question is going to be this. What's the purpose of the law then? And in fact, that very question is asked in verse 19 of chapter 3, Wherefore then serveth the law? And it is in the vein of this discourse that we come to our text tonight. We have examined how that the law was given for three chief purposes. We talked about it last week. I'm not going to reteach last week's lesson, but we talked about how that the law was given to humanity for three purposes. It was given to guilt us, to show us that we were unholy, that we were not capable in and of ourselves to measure up to God's perfect standard. It was given to guard the nation of Israel to maintain until the time would come that the Holy Spirit of God could indwell within uh, those that had put their faith in Christ, it was given to guard them against some of the paganism and the immorality of the day. Uh, and if we don't believe that, we could turn and read where uh, in the Old Testament, whenever God was giving the law uh, to Moses in the book of Exodus, that time and time again he talked about it being a separated people, a different people, a unique people, a peculiar people. And the law was given as the means of that for the nation of Israel in a temporal way. And then finally, the law was given to guide us. So it's given to guilt us, to guard us, but then, of course, to guide us. And that's where we kind of left off last week. Verse number 24 of chapter 3 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The Gentiles had a law in and of themselves. The book of Romans teaches this. Uh, that even uh, those that don't know God, they still have a concept of morality. One of the strongest arguments uh, for the existence of God is the existence of this intrinsic sense of morality. Uh, it's a universal thing. No matter where you go in this world, it's perceived as a negative thing to murder someone or to steal from someone. Uh, it may not be judged in a just way. It may not be uh, kept under tow. But there's no question. It's obvious to humanity uh, that it's wrong to kill someone. Well, the atheist tells us that all things are relative. Uh, by, but by empirical scientific observation, I'm led to believe that that is not so because there is a baseline of morality that is universal to the human experience. Something put that morality within mankind. God put that morality within mankind. Uh, that, that basic, and I'm not saying that that compass can lead us to Christ, but a basic compass that we have somewhat of an understanding of how we ought to behave, how we ought to, uh, like, like the old-timers used to say, how we ought to act like somebody. Amen? And uh, the Gentiles, though, are keenly aware, or were always keenly aware, that they could not uphold this law. 
You say, I don't know about that, preacher. Well, uh, look through history and ask yourself this question. You'll find that the notion of atheism is a modern-day creation. Deism, or a belief in a deity, has always been a basic found, uh, foundational and fundamental human belief. Well, why did they believe that there was a God? Why did they sacrifice to Him? Why did they try to please Him? Because they were keenly aware that they were not capable or sufficient in and of themselves. Now, they may have believed that through their good works they could attain to His favor, but they were aware in and of themselves that they were guilty. And that is something that is pretty well universal to the human experience. Uh, we are aware that we are sinners. We're just not aware of what being a sinner means. And so the Gentiles were already condemned by this law in their minds. But the Jews, having been the promised and elect people of God, uh, had to be shown that the righteousness through the law was not sufficient. And so the Bible tells us, in fact, it says here in this passage, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not going to spend all my time talking about what I talked about last week, but it says that uh, this was given that the whole world uh, might be considered and concluded under sin. Verse 22, but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the law was given to guilt the Old Testament Jews and show them their need of Christ and guide them to Him. Now, Paul is continuing in this vein of thought in chapter number 4. And here's the next automatic question that most people would ask. What then was the situation of Jews that were under the law? If the law was not given to justify, then what did that mean for those Jews that were under the law? What was their relationship or their standing with God? What did it, uh, what did it consist of? And it's this that brings us to the doctrine tonight. And this is an important word, and if you want to write it down, you're welcome to. The doctrine of adoption. Now, when we use the terminology adoption today, we have a very different idea of it. I immediately, uh, without even trying to, my eyes went to Judy Scarborough when I said the word adoption. She's had much experience with it. And uh, when she adopted, and you've adopted three, correct? You've adopted uh, uh, Daniel and Jeff and Rachel, all three. Uh, that's good because they don't look like you, amen? Uh, you know, Tammy looks like you, but, but the rest of them don't. Those children were taken out of the family that they were in uh, through whatever circumstances, and legally they were placed within the Scarborough family. And this I can testify of, and I know all three of those kids would testify of this, uh, that there was no difference or no favoritism that was shown between Ray and Tammy, uh, who were her blood children, and these that were adopted. And that's the idea that we have of adoption, the idea of taking a child into our family. But understand that in the biblical language, the word adoption does not necessarily convey that same meaning, that same idea. Let me give you a phrase, and this was taken from our notes. It's about all we'll take from our notes tonight, amen? But uh, there, there's a phrase from our notes that, that really conveys what the word adoption means in the Bible. And it means to place as a heir or as a son. That's what the word adoption meant. Now, Paul has already, in a sense, conveyed this in verse number 24 when he uses the terminology schoolmaster. You see, that word schoolmaster... And it's conveyed in the words tutors and governors uh, there in uh, chapter number 4. We have a word that we use today, the word pedagogue. Uh, and uh, from that, we take the idea of a teacher. But it conveyed much more than just a teacher. We kind of, when we see schoolmaster, we think of the old, uh, you know, schoolmaster of some sort of one-room prairie school, uh, you know, the person that did all the teaching. 
But in Bible times, a schoolmaster or a tutor or a governor was a servant that was uh, well-trusted and of high ranking, of good esteem in a family, that would be given the responsibility of overseeing that child until they came to an age in which they could be of their own accountability. There's another word that we use, and I've been watching a show on the English monarchy, and this word's been used consistently, and it's the word regent. Many times throughout the history of the English monarchy and many other monarchies, you would have an heir that would be a child. Sometimes even an infant would be literally the king or the queen of an entire empire. Well, of course, that, that infant or that young child could not rule, uh, so they had to have people that were placed over them to guide them, to watch over them, to see to their needs, to see to the affairs uh, of their business. And that is in a lot of ways the function of the tutor, governor, schoolmaster that Paul is speaking about. But there came a time in the life experience of that child in which they would no longer just be considered a child, but they would become an heir. Now what that means is this, they were always the heir. Whatever, if, if their parent had died, whatever their kingdom or their uh, finances consist of, uh, be it a hut or be it a castle, it went to those children. But that child was not given access yet to that inheritance. But long about the age of 12, 13, or 14, typically, the father would appoint a time in which he would take that child, go to the forum or the, uh, what we would consider courthouse today, and would publicly declare that child to be his heir. And from that point on, the responsibility of the schoolmaster or the tutor or the governor was relieved. They no longer had any say in what that child did. If the parent had died from that point henceforth, all that belonged to them was given to that child. They literally entered in as heirs. They had access to the wealth and riches of their parents. And it's this terminology that Paul is using in chapter number 4. Now, how does this relate to us as believers? Remember, this is a dispensational ideal. When I say dispensational, I don't just mean Old Testament. But let me say that the word adoption in the Word of God, the placing of you and I as sons and heirs, has a threefold application in Scripture. It has an application through the Old Testament. It has an application in this day of grace that we live in. And there will come a day in the next dispensation, which is the dispensation of the visible earthly millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, it will have an application then. Let me give it to you in three words, and you know I'm a preacher so I've got to alliterate it. In the Old Testament, it had a positional application. In the New Testament, it had a personal application. And in the kingdom to come, in the millennial reign, it will have a public application. These three things are conveyed not only by Paul here, but by Paul in other places. I want you to turn with me just a few pages over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 1. And I've turned there not for chronology purposes, but because it's, it's uh, short, what we're going to read here. After this, we'll be in Romans 8, and it's a little bit lengthier passage. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him, 
before the foundation of the world. Now, a lot of folks will stop there, and I'm not going to blast Calvinism. Not we, we're not talking about that. We're talking about adoption. But a lot of people will stop right there and not read the rest of the verse. And they'll say, oh, we're chosen in Him. And that's very true. Before the foundation of the world, we've been chosen in Him. But what choice has been made? That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. See, the choice was not who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. But that those that place their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's what has been foreordained. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. How did He make us accepted in the Beloved? Through grace. Not through our own good works, not through our own standing, but in the whosoever will grace of God presented in the Word of God. The predestination that's spoken of is the predestination of the adoption. So this is speaking of a future adoption that will take place. God has chosen this for those that put their faith in Him, and there will come a day when this adoption will take place. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. And I promise you we are going to get to Galatians, so don't get nervous. But we need this as background if we're going to understand what this doctrine means. Now keep in mind as you turn there that adoption did not change the standing or status of a child, merely the relationship that he had with his father. Now that's very important for you to understand. You see, he didn't, he didn't become a child when he was adopted. He became a son when he was adopted. Always part of that family. But he came into a new and larger relationship at that point of adoption. Beginning in chapter number 8, I want to start down in uh, verse number 8. The Bible says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now notice verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God. Now who's led by the Spirit of God? Let me say that that verse does have two applications. I'm aware that not everybody that's indwelt by the Spirit is led by the Spirit. I'm, I'm keenly aware of that. But in the context of what Paul's saying, what does he say in uh, verse number 9? He says this, he says, uh, if so be that the Spirit of God, it says, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So I believe that in the strict context of this passage, verse 14 is speaking of all believers. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It does not say children of God, it says sons of God. That's not a chauvinistic terminology, but it's denoting the difference between children and heirs. Now we are heirs. And in fact, it says in verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, 
but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Look down with me uh, at verse uh, number 21. Or let's look at verse 19. I know we're just skipping one verse, but it says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. So, Paul has spoken about a present adoption that has taken place, but he's now speaking of a future adoption that will take place. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we also, or we ourselves, groan within ourselves, notice this, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body, or of our body. Now, I, I, I recognize I just threw a whole lot of Scripture at you. So I'm going to try to do some very practical explanation here, and then we're going to jump into the book of Galatians. As Paul is describing this doctrine of adoption, in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints had the same status. Now I want you to listen carefully to what I am about to say. They had the same status and standing as a New Testament saint, but only in a positional sense. We read in the book of Luke of a story, and by the way, the book of Luke, 90% of it is Old Testament. Now some of you say, whoa, wait a minute, not in my Bible, preacher. What Bible are you reading? Now I understand we divide it with the New Testament beginning at Matthew. But if we speak in a dispensational sense, the Bible says that a, a testimony is of no effect while the testator liveth. So for the New Testament to begin, Christ had to die for our sins and be resurrected. So the majority of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is really all in the Old Testament dispensation. Everything before Calvary is in the Old Testament dispensation. At the point of Calvary, you have a transition that takes place, and we enter into the day of grace after Christ has died, been buried, rose again from the dead. We have a transition into the day of grace. And, <coughs> excuse me, sometimes I get preaching and a word gets backed up and I swallow it, and I don't know how that happens. But... uh so what we have in the book of Luke is a story of a rich man. We do not know his name. And the story of a beggar by the name of Lazarus. Now, we're all, most of us, familiar with that story. But something you'll find that's very interesting is the abode of the two places of the two men, the place where they went when they died. Both of them died. We know how it goes. And the Bible says that the uh, rich man, he died and went to hell. It says, in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment. The Bible does not say that Lazarus went to heaven. Instead, it uses this terminology. It says he went to Abraham's bosom. Now, let's do some basic geography. Are you ready? Now, don't overthink this, but I want to ask you a question. What direction is hell? Point. Everybody point. What sure, that's, that's right. Okay, what direction is heaven? Sure. The Chinaman may say something different, but, but we know what we're saying. Heaven's up. And hell's down. That's pretty basic. We learned that at a very, very young age. And yet the Bible tells us 
that when Lazarus died, he went into Abraham's bosom, which was a place that was juxtaposed and adjacent to this place called hell. Uh, we're not very familiar with that, are we? And in fact, the Bible teaches that all Old Testament saints, they did not die and go to heaven, but rather they went to Abraham's bosom. Now, the book of Ephesians speaks of what happened when Christ died. He descended in the lower parts of the, the earth. He uh, took captivity captive, held captivity captive, and ascended on high. Uh, we believe that's what happened. We believe that's why some Old Testament saints raised from uh, their grave uh, in the book of Matthew when it describes some of the miracles surrounding Calvary, and that Christ took those Old Testament saints and they went to heaven. Now, you say, preacher, why do you say that? We know the truth of that. We know the facts of that. I want to tell you the why of that. Listen to what the Word of God says in the book of John, chapter 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the Old Testament saints were just as saved as you and I. Their salvation was just as secure. Their place in heaven was just as secure. And yet all through the Old Testament, though they are, in a sense, the children of God, they have a, a status, a standing with Him, because the new birth was not in existence yet, they did not have the capacity to enter fully into that relationship. You see, they were waiting for an adoption. They were the children of God, or the sons of God in a sense, but only in a positional sense. All through the Old Testament, you won't find the doctrine of the new birth. And there is a reason for that, because the new birth was not an experiential thing. People put their faith in God and, and put their faith in the coming Messiah. They were justified by their faith. God looked at them and saw them as justified, but still they had not been born again. And so that portion of that inheritance they could not enter into yet. Let me give you a second thing. The Bible says this about the Holy Ghost in the book of John, chapter number 7. Christ stood up on a feast day and uh, said, Everyone that thirsts, come unto me and I will uh, give you drink. And John made this statement under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, said, This spake he of the Spirit, which was not yet given, because Christ was not yet crucified. Now, we're going to talk here in a moment about the importance of the Holy Spirit in this function of adoption. But because the Holy Spirit of God, and by the way, the Bible speaks of us being baptized by the Spirit of God into His body, being born again, not just the water birth that John speaks about in John chapter number 3, but the spiritual birth, born of the Spirit, because that had not taken place yet. The Spirit of God did not indwell Old Testament believers. Now, the Bible teaches us that the Old Testament believers, God made all these promises to Abraham, had nothing to do with the law. But because these things had not taken place, or in Paul's language in Galatians chapter 4, because the fullness of the time was not yet come, and you'll find that same language in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 that we just read, because the fullness of the time was not come, Though they had a standing and status with God as his children, they were under a tutor and a governor. The fullness of the time had not yet come. That was positional adoption. Now we live in a different day. And Paul is speaking, again, keep in, in mind the context. Paul is speaking of the function of the Old Testament law and its place within God's dispensational plan. Why was the law given? In the Old Testament, because the Spirit of God did not indwell the Old Testament believer, he did not have the capacity in and of himself to mirror or to express the mind and the life and the grace of Jesus Christ, because that's only a function 
of the Holy Spirit. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And so there had to be something that regulated, that throttled, that gauged the way that they lived in that Old Testament time. The law was given. The law was never given to be a permanent fix. It was never the purpose that the law would justify people. It's not possible that the law would justify people. In the Old Testament, they were still children in a sense, but they were not sons. The Bible teaches us that Look with me in Galatians chapter 4. We're finally getting there, amen. Now that we've not got much time left, we're finally getting there. Uh, but look what it says, and, and I can say it no better than the Word of God can. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Now wasn't that the place of the Old Testament saint? He was an heir. God had made these promises to Abraham, and or to himself, and included Abraham in it. When they believed by faith in that promise, they became an heir. But what was their function under the law? It was that of bondage and servitude. You know what it's like, and I touched on this last week. I, I jokingly made this statement, and I'll say it again, that when I was growing up, I thought my first name was Go Get Me, and my last name was A Cup of Coffee. And when I was a child, I can tell you that my, the dynamics of my relationship with my father were very different than they are now. I was still my father's child. He still loved me. Nothing was ever going to change that. As his child, I was an heir to everything, or at least a third of it, unless I can do something about my brother and sister, a third of everything that belonged to him. And yet I was not given the latitude and given the leeway to make my own decisions because I wasn't capable of it. Could I put it this way? I didn't have within me what was needed to live my life the right way. I needed someone to guide me. Now, we live in a, in a society where the parents do that guide. If there's any guiding done at all, the parents do that guiding. But in Bible times, it's very common for a tutor or a governor to do that guiding. My relationship with my dad, it's slightly different now. Uh, he still barks at me, but it's, it's, you know, I've got a home I can leave and go to when I, when I don't want to listen to it. That relationship has changed in a big way. And you better believe, I mean, I'm his pastor. You know, uh, And it has changed in a very definite way. But let me say that even beyond that, when I was a child, let me give you an example. I used to watch TV when I was a child, and that's uh, probably why I'm so messed up, you know. And I'd watch these children's programs. And, uh, you know, everything worked so perfectly on those children's programs. I, I used to wonder why my home wasn't that way. Nowadays, I thank God that my home wasn't that way. But when I was a child, I used to watch it. And the kid on TV, you know, he'd come bouncing to his dad. You know, he was wearing all the nicest clothes, everything that he wanted. You know, he had, a, he had a, and he'd look at his dad and he'd say, Hey, Dad, I'm going to the mall. Can I get 20 bucks from you? The dad'd say, Well, you know, okay, and everything. That wasn't growing up for me. Amen. Uh, that, that was, I, I learned very quickly that for, for my home, life didn't operate like that. I, I got laughed in my face at a few times in scenarios like that. Uh, when I was growing up, and don't misunderstand me, we had everything we needed growing up. My parents were very good to us. We lived three minutes from a Weigel's. But ask a man to get a son a, an icy, and you've asked for an act of Congress. Amen? I, it just it didn't function that way. Everything that belonged to my daddy one day, was gonna, a third of that was going to be mine. But if I went to my dad and said, Dad... I need a hundred dollars. You know the first thing he'd ask? Well, the first thing he'd ask is, "Are you crazy?" 
Then after that, if I, if I was serious, he'd say, what do you need it for? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Today, if I went to my dad and said, Dad, I need, I need $100, he'd, he'd pull his wallet out. He'd say, here you go, son. He may ask me what I need it for, but if I said, well, Dad, i just got some things I need to take care of, he'd say, all right, son. See, he trusts me. I'm given better access to that inheritance. I'm treated with, there's a different relationship now than there used to be. You know why? Because my father, to, to a greater or lesser degree, trusts that I have within me what is needed to be a good representative of our family and to live in the right way. In a very similar way, you and I, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are led, hopefully, by the Spirit of God. And now, we are no longer servants. Now, it's not the letter of the law which killeth, but the Spirit which giveth life. And that relationship has changed. In the Old Testament, they were children of sorts. They were sons of sorts. The promises that had been made to Abraham, they had access to. But they could not walk in the full liberty of that grace because they did not have within them the capacity to do so. Now, what does the Bible say? Verse number 6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Before that, verse number 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, when it speaks of the elements of the world there, it's not speaking of worldliness. And he's going to talk about this down in uh, verse number uh, 9 when he says, But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, and that's why he uses that terminology. He says, you're, it, you know God, but also you have been publicly known of God. Personally, there is a relationship there. Not just that you know Him, because you've always known Him. But now you're known of Him. You're recognized as an heir now. He says, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? The whole discussion is about Old Testament law. Why is it called the elements of the world? Because the law was given as a shadow of heavenly things. They were modeled and patterned after the heavenly things. Now we've been blessed with those heavenly things. We have no need for the earthly shadows. When we step back into legalism, we're going back under a tutor. We're essentially looking at our Father and saying, Lord, I know you've given me your spirit, but rather than walk in your spirit, I choose to go back to my tutor, to my governor. We are taking a, a step backwards in God's plan and wishes for you and I. He says in verse number 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now stick with me, because this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. The tutor was appointed to be over that child until two things happened. One was that he be publicly declared to be a son and an heir, and no longer child. How did the father decide when that was time? Well, how did your parents decide when you had grown up? Certainly wasn't when you turned 18. I, I worry in this world that we live in. I mean, we have, you know, we, we have we have 18-year-olds voting. I remember what I was like at 18. Amen. I don't think that's a good thing, but uh, you know, you, you don't hardly know enough to get out of bed in the morning when you're 18 years old. Certainly, when I became 18, my parents didn't begin to look at me uh, as a grown adult. You know why? Because at 18 years old, I didn't give them much reason to. In fact, usually your parents don't begin to look at you as an adult until you prove to them that you are an adult. 
Now listen carefully. Old Testament saints were under the tutors and governors. What was the thing that determined when the Father would set them forth as sons? When they exhibited that they could do everything that the tutor and governor required of them. You and I, we could never do everything that that tutor and governor, the Old Testament law, required of us. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His own Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Jesus Christ was the quintessential Jew. Now here ties in the doctrine of justification. Because what did He do? He lived as a perfect example. He fulfilled to the absolute jot and tittle of the law everything that the tutor and the governor expected. Something you and I could not do. Then, just as His righteousness was robed upon us, what does it say? To redeem them that were under the law. He went to the cross of Calvary. There He paid the price for our sin debt. We have now been placed within Him. And because He is recognized as a son and an heir, you and I are recognized as sons and as heirs. The relationship has changed. And what is the proof of that? Verse 6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Let me say really quickly, and this is a parenthetical statement, but it's a blessing. The word Abba, why does the Bible use the word Abba? That was the Hebrew word for Father. The word translated here as Father, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, is the Greek word patri, or patra. And it's the same place that we get the word Father from. You can hear almost the phonetical similarity. So implied in here is that both Jew and Gentile, through Jesus Christ, have been given full access as a son and as an heir into everything that God has for us. The Old Testament saint was promised all these things. Why? Because the seed was promised to Abraham, and it was given by faith. The Old Testament saint, if he approached God through faith, that promise held true for him, just as it does for you and me. But, but, because the fullness of the time was not come, and the Son had not come and fulfilled everything that the tutor, the governor, the schoolmaster expected, he was only positionally a child, not personally. You and I have a different relationship, for you see, we enjoy the personal aspect of adoption. The Spirit of God dwells within us. And now, listen carefully, oh, I like this. Now, if we do something wrong, our relationship is not with the tutor or governor anymore. You see, the idea wasn't that after the tutor or governor was finished that the child would never do anything to dishonor the father anymore. But now, just as my relationship with my father has changed, if I had been under tutors or governors and I had done something wrong, you can imagine, especially in the sense of a, of a situation of royalty, they wouldn't run to the king and tell the king everything that the child did wrong. Why? He's got a kingdom to rule. If he did something wrong, the regent, the schoolmaster, the tutor, that was dealt with between the child and the tutor. And in the Old Testament, the law was given as this barrier between fallen man and righteous God. And it was with the law that that exchange was given. That's why through the Old Testament law, there's a provision for everything you could imagine. What do we do? 
whenever God gave Moses the law, just as the, the king would give his wishes to the tutor or to the governor, and then that relationship would be carried on between the child and the governor. God gave his law to Moses. The Bible is, the Old Testament is distinctly marked by two different categories. We could say there's three. We could denote the poetic books as a third category, but there's basically two different categories. The law and the prophets. The prophets is not given to give new law. The prophets was given as God's mouthpiece to the nation of Israel. But for the individual, the law was given for that relationship between them and God. And there's a provision for everything that you could imagine. Why? Because Moses wasn't going to be there to go to God again. The law had been given. And if an offense was brought about, the law had the answer to it. Now, we're in a vastly different relationship. For you see, now that we have become adopted, now that we enjoy the personal benefits of the adoption uh, of the Spirit of God and of Jesus Christ, now we don't deal with a tutor and governor. When we sin, we deal with the Father. Remember what it said in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, now we deal with our Father. Just the same way that, uh, that you might go, and if you've done something wrong against your Father, uh, you might go and deal directly with Him. Or as this child in a royal context would no longer go to the tutor or the governor, but would be given entrance into the Father to deal directly with the Father. How does this take place? God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son, verse number 6, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're not going to take the time, but I encourage you to read back through Romans chapter 8 tonight and see the beauty of the relationship we have. The Spirit itself also maketh intercessions for us with groanings and utterings uh, which cannot be understood, cannot be discerned. It's been said before, and I believe there's some some serious truth to this, that in a lot of ways, the mother is the Holy Spirit of the home. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, there were times my mama whipped me or she tried to whip me. I'm being honest, but it was the sound of daddy's belt that I learned to fear. And there's something about that sound, man. I mean, my dad, he'd come through the door and he'd be worn out. He'd be tired. He'd be look like he's about ready to collapse. And all of a sudden, whenever he found out I'd done wrong, he'd turn into Hercules. He'd say, man. And, and this man that was just getting ready to collapse, he'd pull on that, that belt like he was starting a weed eater, man. Wow! That last belt loop popped louder than the rest of them. I don't know why. I think, I, I think that was the sound of the belt breaking the sound barrier, you know? But I knew... That if I couldn't get, now listen, I'm not trying to misspeak, but I knew if I couldn't get my daddy to listen, that my mama would always listen. And there were times that if I couldn't get through to my daddy, because I didn't know how to say it right, and I didn't know how to speak right, and I didn't know the words to say, if I could just tell mama, I knew that mama could make him understand. Now the spirit of his sons indwells in our hearts. And we pray, I'm going to be honest with you, if God took my prayers at face value, I'd make the biggest mess of things you've ever seen. There's times I pray for things that are out of the will of God. There's times I pray for things, and I, I know I'm not praying right, and there's times I need to pray for things that I don't know how to pray for. 
But God listens to the heart's utterings. The Holy Spirit of God takes those and makes them fit for the throne room of grace and makes them what they need to be before the high and holy and almighty ears of a thrice holy God. That's the evidence. Let me say a very quick word. It says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We've spoken about the positional adoption, the Old Testament saints. They were children, they were sons, they were not treated as such. We spoke about the personal adoption that you and I enjoy in this day of grace. The Spirit of His Son indwells us. We have a relationship with God. But do you remember what John said in 1 John chapter number 3 and verse 1? He said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. One of the aspects to that adoption was this. The father would take that child to a public area and would in a very legal and a very public sense would declare before the entire world, this is my son and mine heir. We live in a world now that because it knew him not, it knoweth us not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. The Bible says that light came into the world. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The Bible says in the book of Acts concerning the Pharisees that if they, had, if they had believed, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We live in a day where the world recognizes Jesus as a lot of things, as a good teacher, as a great inspirational speaker, as the, the leader of a, uh, of a belief system and a religion. But one thing that the world does not consciously recognize Him as is as the Son of God. It knoweth Him not. Therefore, it knoweth us not. You see, Romans chapter 8 says, The whole creation groaneth and prevaileth even until now, waiting for the adoption of sons, for the manifestation. You know what that word manifestation means, don't you? To be brought into the light. There's coming a day, and the book of Ephesians is speaking about it in chapter 1 when it speaks of being predestinated. That entire chapter is speaking of what the eternal ages are going to be like for the child of God that God might show forth in the ages to come the exceeding riches of His grace through us. And there's coming a day. When will that happen? Well, what is Romans chapter 8 talking about? It speaks about the resurrection, but it also speaks about the second coming. There will be a public adoption ceremony taking place one of these days. When Jesus Christ returns in power and in glory, visibly bodily in this world that we live in. Revelation chapter 19 describes it for us. The Bible says uh, that uh, uh, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. That Jesus Christ is returning to this earth one day. When He does, He's coming in power and in glory uh, with His vesture dipped in blood and a robe of white uh, with a name written on His thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist and He's going to usher in a new dispensation the day of the millennial reign, the kingdom age. When that happens, the Bible says that the whole world will see us for what we are. That is God's adoption ceremony for the believer. When despite all of the cruelty and all of the blindness that this world has practiced and set forth, 
for these many, many years that God will finally set us forth as the sons and heirs that we truly are, join heirs with Christ. When He reigns, the Bible promises, we reign with Him. And we are publicly confessed, recognized, and set forth as His sons to this lost world we live in. Right now, the world doesn't recognize us as such, but there's coming a day when it will. Paul's giving all these truths to help us understand the state of the Old Testament believer, but also the state of the New Testament believer, the relationship we have with God. But in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, he even goes a step further to say that there's coming a day when all this will be brought to consummation and that God will show us forth as His sons to this lost and dying world. It's these truths that Paul is conveying to us. You say, preacher, how does that help me? It helps you in this way. It helps you in understanding, first of all, that you have the full-fledged relationship of a son with God. You have the Spirit of God within you. Despite all of this world's hatred and all of its persecution, despite the devil's best attempt to try to thwart us and discourage us and cast us to to the trash heap of eternity, he never can because we are the sons of God. God sees us as joint heirs with Christ. No sooner will He throw us away than He would throw away His only begotten Son. But then it gives us this comfort that there's coming a day when the devil will be bound hand and foot, cast into a bottomless pit, when the armies of the Antichrist will be thwarted, when the satanic conspiracy of Satan that has been practiced for all of these ages will be trumped and destroyed. And when the world ideology of the rejection of the Son of God will be thrown to the trash heap of eternity. And when you and I will reign with Him. Let me just say, and maybe I'll not say this, it may seem ugly, but I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to be a premillennialist. <laughs> Amen? Oh, and I'm not trying to be ugly. I know there's lots of good folks that love the Lord that, that don't see these truths that we're talking about tonight. But let me just say that What a blessing it is to know there's a coming kingdom. What a blessing it is to know that Christ is returning. What a blessing it is to know that one of these days we'll be recognized as this world in our rightful place as sons of God, as more than conquerors through Him that loved us.